Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John chapter 12. And if we could bring the house lights up a little bit, I can see now. John chapter 12. (coughs) This morning I want you to think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Maybe it was when you were standing on the white beach and you saw the vermilion sun setting over the ocean and you thought, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Or maybe you hiked up a 14er and you're on the top of the mountain and you overlook the Continental Divide and you say, we live in an awesome state of Colorado. This is beautiful. Or maybe you were in a gallery one time and you saw a painting hanging there and it just captured your imagination. You said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Or for some of us men, maybe the most beautiful thing we ever saw was when our bride entered that sanctuary and walked down the aisle. Or maybe for some parents, it was a beautiful thing to see your child take their first step and walk. You see, God in His grace has given us the joy of being able to see a lot of beautiful things in life. But what if I were to say to you, the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most spectacular, the most stupendous thing ever to see is Jesus, battered and bruised and bloody, with the crown of thorns on His head, Half of his beard ripped out, sweating and dying and bleeding on a cross of wood between two criminals while those below him are railing curses at him. When I mention something that's the most beautiful, the most captivating, the most glorious thing you've ever seen, does the cross of Christ enter your mind? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, If there should ever come a wretched day when all of our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary atonement shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice. Nay, verily, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Today's passage goes right to the heart of the cross and right to the heart of God's glory in the cross. So let's see this beautiful event unfold before us this morning in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Let's read this together. 
Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Here's the main thrust of this passage of Scripture. Here's the big idea. Here's the main point. God's glory displayed in the cross should move you to trust in Jesus while you still have time. God's glory, as it's displayed in the cross of Christ, should move you, should motivate you, should urge you to trust in Jesus while you still have time. Now, let's remember our context for this morning. This is part of a larger conversation that Jesus has had with these Greeks. Remember last week, these Greeks speaking, these Greeks, these Gentiles, came to Jesus and they wanted to see Jesus. And if you remember verse 23, what does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. It is time. What is the hour of which Jesus is speaking? His death on the cross. Remember he said like a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and then rises again. In just a few days, he's going to go to the bloody cross. It will be a fulfillment of the prophecy that we've seen over and over in the Old Testament about Jesus. Isaiah 53.5 But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That prophecy is about to come true in just a few days for Jesus. He's about to be crushed. He's about to be suffering. He's he's about to undergo the torture of crucifixion and all that entails. And that's why we see the anguish of Christ in verse 27. The anguish of Christ. What does he say? Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. My soul is troubled, Jesus says. That word troubled is a very strong word in the original language. It means to be tossed about. It means to be in a panic. It means to be horrified. It means to be overwhelmed with anxiety. It's what Jesus experienced in the other three Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's very similar. Matthew 26, 39, what does Jesus pray? Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus wants the cup to pass from him. Now, what's the cup? What's the cup he's talking about? It's the full cup of God's justice. It's the full cup of God's wrath that he will pour out against sin upon Jesus. Jesus knows in just a few days he's going to take the cup of all of God's justice, all of God's penalty, all of God's payment against sin upon himself, and it will be the most excruciating pain anybody's ever experienced. Far more than crucifixion, may I remind you. Thousands of people were crucified during Jesus' day. They had nails in their hands and feet. They experienced the torture of crucifixion. But nobody will experience the cup of God's wrath the way Jesus was going to experience it. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. My soul is troubled. My soul is in anguish. Jesus knows in just a few days he's going to die in our place. As First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The anguish of Christ. But yet we see the aim of Christ because what does he say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. It's my purpose. It's the reason why I have come to this hour. What is first and foremost on Jesus' mind when he comes to the thought of facing the cross? He says it right there in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. What's first and foremost in Jesus' mind as he's about to face the anguish of the cross is the glory of God. And in just a few days, Jesus is going to be lifted up. Now that word lifted up has a double meaning. It literally means Jesus will be lifted up physically on a cross of wood planted into the ground outside of Jerusalem and he will die lifted up on a cross. But it also means he's going to die, he's going to rise again, and he's going to be lifted up back to heaven where he's going to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. As a matter of fact, that's the way the word is used in the gospel or in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, 32-33, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted, there's the word, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out to this you that yourselves are seeing and hearing. God exalted Jesus to the right hand. He lifted Jesus up. He's at the right hand of the Father. Acts 5.30-31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted, God lifted him up at the right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on a cross and eventually lifted up to heaven. But what is on Jesus' mind most and foremost is the glory of God. Notice what he says. Father, glorify your name. I can't conceive of this. 
If I was about to go and die on a cross, the last thing I would be saying is, Father, glorify your name. I'd be saying, Father, get me out of this because I don't want to do it. You see, contrary to popular opinion, in our self-centered, consumeristic, me-centered world, we often think that everything's about us. Now, this may shock you, but Jesus did not die on the cross primarily for you. Now, before you get mad at me, Jesus died on the cross primarily for the glory of God first and then for us. We often think that the cross is is all about us. Jesus here says, number one, the cross, me being lifted up, is about the glory of God. And yes, we benefit, as we're going to see here this morning. So yes, Jesus died for our sins, but let us not forget that the primary reason Jesus goes to the cross is for the glory of God. He says it right there. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There is benefit to us in the cross of Christ. So what I want us to do this morning is is explore four ways God's glory is on display in the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. We see them right here in the text. Four ways that God gets the glory in the cross, but we benefit from it. Okay, so let's look at these together. Here's the first. First of all, Jesus' death divides the world into two categories. His death divides. Now notice what he says there in verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of the world. We've seen this theme over and over again in the Gospel of John multiple times. What has Jesus told us multiple times? He said, if you refuse to believe in me, you will face judgment. You will face condemnation. John 3, 19-20. Jesus has already told us this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The cross is the dividing point in history. It divides people between two categories, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. And there's judgment if you don't believe in Jesus. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's wrath, there's judgment, there is punishment. He says, now is the judgment of the world. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He said it multiple times already, Jesus. If you believe in him, you escape judgment You pass from death to life. You have eternal life. If you refuse to believe him, if you don't believe him, if you die in your sins, you will experience judgment. So there's two categories. The cross divides the world into two. There's no middle ground. 
You're either in category one or you're in category two. Category one, you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You've placed all your faith in Jesus. He's taken your penalty. He's taken your sin. You now stand forgiven in Christ, and he's taken the punishment. That's category one. Category two, you do not accept Christ. You do not trust Christ. You die in your sins, and thus you will face the penalty of your sins. You will face judgment. You will face hell. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no in-between. You're either, you're either in Christ or you're lost. You're either saved or you're lost. And Jesus says, now is the judgment. And notice what Paul tells us in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, there's no condemnation for you. Your sins have been paid for. There's no penalty. There's no punishment. There's no, there's no guilt. Why do you think Jesus was so troubled? Because he knew in just a few days he would take the punishment, the guilt, the judgment. The judgment that every single one of us deserves, the judgment he did not deserve because he was perfect, he was sinless, he knew he was going to take the penalty, the punishment, the judgment for our sins. My soul is troubled. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who sang on a tree. Do, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ has taken your penalty? He's taken away your sin. And if so, you are no longer under condemnation. And do you live in the freedom of that? Do you live in the joy of knowing that all of your sins are forgiven? So the first question you've got to ask yourself is, which category am I in? Because Jesus says judgment has now come. The hour has come. He's going to divide the world into two categories. You're either lost or saved. Which one are you? Here's the second thing Jesus' death does. Jesus' death defeats our accuser, the devil. It not only divides people into two categories, but it defeats the devil. Notice what else he says there in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, who's he talking about the ruler of this world being cast out? Well, it's Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 calls him the God of this age. Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. So what does it mean that Satan's going to be cast out? Does it mean that he no longer can tempt you? Does it mean he's no longer a roaring lion looking for somebody to, to, to devour? Does it, does it mean that Satan is rendered powerless? What does it mean that he's been cast out? I want you to think about an illustration for a moment. Think about World War II for a moment. World War II, June 6, 1944. We call it D-Day. It's when the Allied forces stormed the beach in Normandy, France, and they pushed back the Third Reich. They pushed back uh, the Hitler's powers. Over 130,000 troops landed on the beach that day. For all intents and purposes, D-Day was pretty much the end of World War II. Hitler pretty much knew that he had lost. Now, is he going to just roll over as if nothing happened? No, Hitler's going to push back. That's when we had the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge was the bloodiest battle for American troops in World War II. And it wasn't until 
about a year later, on April 30th, 1945, when Hitler committed suicide, because he knew that they lost. And then on May 8th, 1945, the Allied troops really won the war. It was called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So you see, there's D-Day and there's VE Day. D-Day is where the battle pretty much was, was won, but there's still time until the ultimate battle's won. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan as if it was D-Day. So we're in between D-Day and V-E Day. V-E Day is when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. He's come down to the earth because he knows his time is short, and he's going to wreak havoc. So yes, Satan has been defeated in the sense that he can't, he can't influence you as a Christian in a way to possess you or to, to, to do anything to harm your salvation. He can still tempt you, but ultimately he was defeated on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Who are these rulers and authorities that Jesus disarmed? Satan and his Demons have been disarmed in the cross. They've been defeated. Hebrews 2, 14-15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that he through death might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. Jesus disarmed the devil. 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 12, 11, They've conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Satan was disarmed. Now, here's the the thing we need to understand. Do you believe that Satan has no claim on your life and his works have been destroyed and you can stand firm and resist him through the blood of Christ? You don't have to fear the devil. Yes, he's real. He's going to attack. Yes, demons are real. They're going to attack, but you don't need to fear them. You don't need to live in bondage to them. You're no longer a slave to sin. You can't be possessed by, by Satan. He can attack. He can attack, but all you have to do is stand firm in the full armor of God and resist him, and he will flee from you, all because of what Jesus did on the cross when he says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Here's the third thing. Jesus draws his sheep to him in faith. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, first of all, what does it mean that Jesus draws people? It means to pull, to drag to compel, to bring. 
in John 21, it refers to drawing fish out of a net. In Acts 14, it refers to a mob dragging Paul out of the town to stone him. And in James, it refers to the rich dragging the poor into the court. Now, we need to be careful here. It doesn't mean that Jesus forcibly drags you kicking and screaming against your will into heaven. Nobody was ever dragged kicking and screaming against their will into heaven. What Jesus does is he overcomes your deadness and your inability and your unwillingness to come to heaven, and he overcomes that so that you willingly do come. He compels you. He overcomes that deadness. I love the way R.C. Sproul gives an illustration of this. He, he talks about how this Greek word also means to draw water out of a well. Now, there's different ways you can draw water out of a well. One way is you can stand at the top of the well and say, here, water, water, water. Is the water going to come up? All the, begging, all the beckoning, come on, water, come on, you can do it. I know you can do it, water. And you're waiting a long time. He says the other way to do it is to put a pail, put it down on the pulley, and what? You have to pull the water up. He says, because we're dead in sin, we're like the water at the bottom. We, we don't have the power to pull ourselves up. We don't have the power to be drawn to God. God has to sovereignly come and initiate that in us. He says this, it's as necessary for God to come into our hearts to turn us to Christ as it is for us to put a bucket in the water and pull it out if we want anything to drink. The water simply will not come on its own, responding to a mere external invitation. Jesus has already taught this. This is nothing new that he's not already taught us in the Gospel of John. What did he teach us back in John chapter 6? John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, it's not an issue of permission, but of ability. No one has the ability to come to God unless he's drawn. John 6, 65 he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. God has to grant this ability to come. God has to draw you. You have to be drawn. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw, I will bring, I will compel all people. Now, what does this mean? All people. In the original Greek, it does not say people. It just says, I will draw all to myself. What does this mean? Does this mean that every single person is going to be saved? No. That's a heresy called universalism that says every single person is going to be saved. Does this mean that when Jesus Christ is lifted on the cross, every single person is going to be saved? No. What does it mean that he's going to draw all people to himself? It could be translated all types of people. Who's he talking to? Context is very, very important here to understand what Jesus is saying. Who's he talking to? Go back to verse 20. This is where the conversation starts. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Greeks. And what Jesus is saying here is that when I'm lifted up on the cross, I'm going to draw all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile-like, not all people without exception. In other words, it doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your background is, there's going to be a drawing, there's going to be a salvation. The cross is going to be for not just the Jews only, it's going to be for Gentiles. It's going to be for all types of people. He's already taught this. 
Jesus already taught that he, as the shepherd, has sheep that are of a different fold, and he's got to bring them in also. And so back in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to Jewish people. John 10, 16, what does Jesus say to Jewish people? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, who's the sheep of the other flock? Gentiles. The Gentiles will be brought in so there'll be one flock. What Jesus is saying to Jews in John chapter 10 is there are Jews, yes, I'm dying for you, I'm I'm your shepherd, but there's also Gentiles, there's all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. I've got to bring them in also. I'm going to draw all people without distinction into my family. John 11, 51 through 52, Caiaphas the high priest prophesied not knowing really what he was doing about Jesus accomplishing this. John eleven fifty one through 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. Who's the nation there? Jews. Not just for the Jews only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See two categories there? You've got the nation, Jews. You've got the scattered abroad, Gentiles. He's going to die and bring them together into one flock. Now, where do we see this most beautifully pictured? In Revelation. John, the gospel writer, also wrote Revelation. John 5, or Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God out of or from every tribe and language and people and nation. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he's going to draw all types of people to himself, Jew and Gentile, people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Does that mean every single person on planet Earth is going to get saved? No, because he just told us now is the judgment. We know there's two categories. There's going to be people that refuse him in the next chapter. There's going to be, I mean, the next few verses, there's going to be people who don't believe in him. That's not what he's talking about. So here's the thing. How do people who are the scattered sheep abroad hear about Jesus? He has to be lifted up. Not only was he lifted up on a cross, not only was he lifted up to heaven, but every time you open your mouth and share the gospel, what are you doing? You're lifting Jesus up. So you and I have the privilege to go to people who are lost, to go to people who are, who are in their sin, and say to them, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me lift up Jesus. Let me exalt Jesus. Let me tell you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And you have the confidence that when you do that, if they are scattered sheep that are abroad, when you go, they will hear the voice of the shepherd and they will be drawn to Jesus. What better time than Christmas than to go lift up Jesus. Lift him up. There's that old Petra song. Shows my age, right? Lift him up. Higher and higher. Lift him up. Set the world on fire. It doesn't take much theology. Just lift him up so the world can see. This wasn't even part of my notes. It just came out. Some of you, Petra. Why in the world did that song come out? Petra, lift him up. Higher and higher. Lift him up so the world can see. So lift up Jesus so that he can draw all types of people to himself. Here's the fourth thing Jesus' death does. It determines your right to become a child of God. Now notice what Jesus continues to say here about being the light of the world. 
It says in verse 35, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. Why? So that you may become sons of light. Jesus already told us this back in John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' death on the cross determines your right to become a child of God. He says, if you believe in Jesus, you will be a son of light. You will go from being enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan. You will go from being an outsider in your sins to be adopted into the very family of God Almighty so that you can relate to God as your father, you as a child, and you have direct access to your daddy through Jesus Christ. And he paid for that for you on the cross. He gave you the right to become a child of God. We've already seen this in John. It's amazing. I think what Jesus is doing here is I've thought about this more. He's repeating so many things that he's already taught us. Why is he repeating these things? Who's his audience? Greeks. They haven't heard this stuff yet. The Jews have heard this. This is a new audience that he's talking to. They haven't heard these things. We've heard these things because we've, we've been tracking in the Gospel of John. But these, this particular audience hasn't heard these things yet. So Jesus is repeating a lot of themes he's already repeated or he's already dealt with because he had a different audience. These are Gentiles. But back in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the cross divides two categories. The cross defeats Satan. The cross draws people to Christ. And the cross determines your right to be a child of God. But I want you to notice something that Jesus says there is an urgency what does he say in verse 36 while you have the light believe in the light now to that immediate audience what's he saying you better believe in me now because i'm not going to be here much longer I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. While you have the light, while Jesus is in the flesh in front of you as the light of the world, believe in him. And it's the same today. There's an urgency. While you still have breath in your lungs, believe in Jesus. None of you are guaranteed anything the moment you step out of this room. Nobody's guaranteed anything. And there may be some of you in this room who have never, ever trusted Christ. You're in that category where you haven't believed in Christ. And Jesus would look you in the eye and say, believe in me while you still have time because you may not have time. It may be too late. I'm not always going to be here is what he's saying to that original audience. There is an urgency. And so here's the issue. You've heard the truth today. You're accountable to that truth. There is no excuse. You can't walk out here and say, I didn't know. So you need to respond to Jesus now. Trust in Jesus is the only one that can take away your judgment. Now is the time for judgment. Jesus took it away. Trust in Jesus is the only one who has defeated Satan. The ruler of this world is cast out. Trust in Jesus as the only one that can draw you to himself. I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all types of people to myself. 
Trust in Jesus as the only one that can adopt you into God's family so that you can be a son and daughter of light. There's an urgency. You don't want to play around. You don't want to mess around. You want to make sure that you trust in Christ today. Why? Because God's glory displayed in the cross should move you to trust in Jesus while you still have time. And there's time right now. What does the Bible say? Today is a day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So let me ask you to bow your heads. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and commemorate Jesus being lifted up on a cross. This morning, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the joy of what it means to remember your body and your blood. May the words of your mouth, Jesus, that we've just heard from John chapter 12, not just go into our ears, but sink down into our hearts. That we might be changed, we might be transformed. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has never trusted Christ for salvation, would they have an urgency to do it today? Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you show them that their sin has been paid for on the cross? Would you show them that Satan has been defeated? And would you show them that they can be adopted into your family? Lord, for those of us that have trusted you, would we live in the joy of that? Would we be so thankful that you took our judgment? Would we be so thankful that you defeated Satan? Would we be so thankful that you drew us to yourself? And would we be so thankful that we have been adopted as your children? all to the glory of God. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.